Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. I'll be reading from 8 for verse 8 to 31. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I, that, that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where, then, is your blessing of me now? I can testify that, if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are broken down. Uh, these things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from, son, from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Abria and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother for it is written, be glad barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud. You who are never in labor because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now, but what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Thank you, Georgie, for reading that so well. Good on you. It's great to have Jenna and Cody up in the band. Very cool. Let's pray. Our loving Father, it's, it's a privilege to be here with your people and to open the Bible. And yet, as we come today, we must you know, admit that we're a bit perplexed, so we ask for your help. Help me to be clear. Help us to see the relevance of this. Help us to love you more. Help us to appreciate your fatherly goodness, the power of your spirit, the, the, the wonderful, the wonderful merit of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so you might be excused for thinking, given, given what we've just heard, uh, that basically what we've got before us are two big lumps. Firstly, you have 
an emotional heart on the sleeve moment for Paul, maybe he wants us to feel sorry for him, followed by a second lump of pretty creative Old Testament allegory. And then you might find yourself wondering, well, what possible relevance does this have for me today? Wouldn't it have been better just to go out for a late brunch down at Fred's or stay tucked up in bed? So I want to begin by asking, what exactly is at stake for us in Galatians? And the answer is, you know, if we don't take to heart this, the message of Galatians is the realizing of our worst possible fears. This came out to me um, at Bible study a couple of weeks back. We were in, a, in an earlier chapter in Galatians. The study began by asking the question, are you looking forward to Christ's return? And it came out that some of us approach that day with a large degree of apprehension. And some days that's me as well. Because the common fear was that we would be one of the people that Jesus says on the last day, depart from me, I never knew you. Surely all, of all the things to be afraid of, this tops the list. Um, and to make matters worse, of course, it's not just one or two people that Jesus will say this of. Jesus says it will be many, many. Um, he'll say it to, he says it to people who don't just call themselves Christians, but also who are actively involved in ministry, those who prophesied in Jesus' name. Uh, if you go on to the next slide, thanks. Yeah. Um, did we not prophesy in your name? They're involved in ministry. And what makes it more scary for me is that they were successful in ministry. In your name, didn't we drive out demons and put, in your name perform many miracles? Successful in ministry. And then Jesus will say to them that these plain and terrifying and most you know, terrible of rejections, I never knew you away from me you evildoers, and to make it worse, you know, it, you get the sense that the people here are completely shocked. They hadn't been anticipating this response from Jesus. Now, this has to be our worst fear, doesn't it? So why do I raise this? Because if we look at the end of our passage today in Galatians chapter four, verse 30, Paul, after, after he spent a while contrasting genuine Christianity with a kind of false version the Galatians are being drawn to. He gets to these equally devastating words of rejection for Hagar and Ishmael. Um, get rid of the slave woman and her son. They'll never share in the inheritance. And if you know the story, uh, then you have the, this massively distressing scene which is ominously prophetic of Jesus' words in Matthew 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The slave woman and her son are then sent away. What we have here in Galatians, therefore, is one big negative lesson. Now, I know we are people who like to be positive, right? <laughs> you like to give encouragement, affirmation. That was last week, and it'll be next week, right? But this week, we just have to deal with what we've got right in front of us, and... You know, we're, we're, we're out of bed, we're not at Fred, so let's just make the mo most of it, okay? So, um, but sometimes you need a negative to, to make really clear why it's bad to keep on going down the path of destruction. So 
if you've ever had, for example, responsibility of a four-year-old child, and there are only so many times you can be encouraging about not running out on the road. You know, look, walk on the footpath. Isn't it a wonderful footpath? Can you sit closer to the flowers, you know? But still the road has its attractions. And you have to, at some point, point out the negative. Here are the consequences of what will happen if you continue down this path of blithely running out without looking. You know, you will be destroyed. <laughs> oh, okay. Paul is going down this sort of tactic here. So in answer to the question, what's at stake for us in Galatians? There are three negatives. Your return to worldly religion, which will mean rejecting Paul as our apostle, which will mean being rejected as a son and sent away. He, then he finishes with a positive on how to address that fear, thankfully. But that, this is our journey today. So in verses eight to 11, firstly, Paul asks, why are they living genuine Christianity and returning to worldly religion? And in the course of asking this outcome, two truths and one query. The first truth is in verses nine and 10. And that is that genuine Christianity is not about religious observances, but having a relationship with God. He says, now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to the weak and miserable principles, like verse 10, observing special days and months and seasons and years? What we see here is that what matters to God is not whether we turn up to religious feasts and festivals on the right calendar day, but rather whether we know God and whether he knows us, or to borrow from Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, whether Jesus Christ knows us, because remember that's the basis of his rejection. Depart from me, I never knew you. He's talking about a relationship, right? True Christianity is not about keeping a whole stack of rules about, about what we can and can't do. And neither is it filling our diaries with saints, festivals, and feasts. It is about knowing God personally and having a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And we note the Galatians have it. Once, verse eight, they didn't know God, but now, verse nine, they do. And they're known by God, though it appears this is in jeopardy. Second truth comes out in verse eight and nine, and that's the insight that biblical legalism is in fact no different to pagan religion. Now, this is quite a shock. He says, formerly, when you didn't know God, that is when you were pagan worshippers, remember when I first came to you and you wanted, I did a miracle and then you wanted to sacrifice to myself and Barnabas and you started calling us Zeus and Hermes, this is like evangelism gone wrong. Bah, bah. Um, <laughs> um, remember then when you didn't know God, when you were pagan worshippers? You were slaves then to those who by nature are not gods. Paul says, because Although you are sincere in your worship, the reality is Zeus does not exist. He's there in Greek mythology, but that's the only place he's there. He just does, he's not real. And in fact, neither are any of the other pagan gods. And today we would say, well, Shiva and Krishna, they're not real. Allah is not real. The rainbow serpent, not real. They don't exist. But here's the point, in verse nine he says, in letting go of Christ and now turning to obey Jewish laws which come from the Bible, he says it's exactly the same. 
He says, how is it that you're now turning back to those same weak and miserable principles that you had when you were pagans? In other words, there's no difference, spiritually speaking, between worshiping pagan gods and relying on your obedience to Jewish laws for your status towards God. Now, he's saying both of these are dead ends. Why? Because both say you have to jump high through these hoops to achieve salvation. Now, genuine Christian faith says my salvation has got nothing to do with jumping through religious hoops, but everything to do with knowing God through Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. Two truths and then a query. The query we're left with is, what do we do with Christmas and Easter, right? Because <laughs> aren't they, you know, you're observing special days and months and seasons and years. Well, aren't they our special seasons? And, you know, what do we do with the special days, Christmas and Easter, which Paul lambasts in verse 11? The answer is, if you think that just coming to church then is what Christianity is reduced to. If that's all that being Christian entails without any personal relationship with God through Christ, then it is no different to pagan religion. But if there's a relationship with God, if God knows you and you know God through Christ, through the gospel, then those things become moments of joy. They're transformed, they have meaning instead of being something merely religious that you do. So Paul begins by contrasting genuine Christianity with worldly religion. You know God, you have a relationship with God, so why on earth would you throw that all away and go back to worldly religion based on rules? Secondly, returning to worldly religion means rejecting Paul as our apostle. That's what the Galatians have virtually done, whereas once they welcomed Paul as if he were an angel of God, as if he were Christ Jesus himself, whereas once they would have torn out their eyes and given them to him. Now they treat him with contempt and scorn. So verse 16, he asks, have I become your enemy now just because I've told you the truth? It's not just that they've fallen out as people sometimes do. You know, they've, they've rejected him because of the message he's saying, but... You've got to see where this goes. In rejecting him because of the message, they're rejecting the one who sent the message and whose message it is, they're rejecting God himself. That's why Paul's plea is so ardent and personal in verse 12 where he says, become like me because I became like you. You know, I became like you when I was with you. I didn't let my Jewish background influence whether I could talk to you or not, I, I put that aside, I, I related to you, I ate with you. And he says, so become like me in the sense of someone who, for whom Christ is everything. And my former religious practices and pedigree, that counts for nothing. So become like me in that sense. He's a model to them of what faith in Christ looks like in the flesh. And they and we need to model ourselves on him. And then he spells out a warning, verse 17. The, the people that had come to Galatia, the teachers that had come after Paul had left, had come with a different gospel. He says, look, they're zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. And 
dividing, um, creating party loyalty, um, appreciation for them, not God. That's what worldly ministry is like. So when someone comes flattering you, um, who's religious, and makes much of you so that you will flatter and make much of them, look out, because that desire for praise comes from a place of insecurity which is not based on being a son or daughter of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, if you've got that identity, you won't care for people's flattery. It's so different. And typically what happens is um, people who don't have grasp of the gospel, aren't genuinely converted, they can't handle genuine conversion. They can't handle genuine faith in Christ from the gospel, which says Christ is everything and he's, he's enough. And so they denigrate the apostle that says so. So you've got to always be aware of Christians today who say, I like Jesus, but I don't like Paul. Paul was sent out by Jesus to be our apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles. He remains our apostle. And so if we distance ourselves from him, we distance ourselves from Jesus who sent Paul and from God because it was in Paul that God was pleased to reveal his son, chapter two, verse 16. The truth is that far from Paul being their enemy, verse 19, he really, really cares for them. He's worried for them. He's anxious for them. He's in anguish for them. In fact, he likens his anguish and concern for them like, being, uh, like the pains of a mother in childbirth. Until Christ is formed in them, he's, he's agonizing for them. He really, really cares. Now, I've got to say, I understand this to a degree. Um, the, I, I think I can speak for Mark and myself and, and you know, Catherine, who on Mondays we're down in that room, we are praying for everyone. We carry you in our hearts. When, when I write a, mess, a, a sermon, I'm thinking of not just abstract, I'm thinking of you. I'm thinking of people. And so, frankly, it's a real bummer, you know, when I've written a sermon for someone and they're, and they're just not here. Um, but I trust the Holy Spirit enough to know that he who inspired God's word is writing his law in other people's hearts and transforming them. And so I trust in God that keeps me sane. But the care and the concern is something that we carry. Um, but we have to realize we're not a cult, right? So, you know, we're not the whole Hotel California. You can leave. Um, and sometimes people do. But when they do, it's like, it's like we lose a bit of ourselves. It's just painful. But the real agony comes if people leave and then they go, they either go nowhere. I mean, what's that say? Or they go somewhere where the gospel is hidden at best, if ever it comes out. And usually the reason why this might happen is because that God is only ever spoken of as a God of love and judgment and sin and therefore repentance are never, never spoken of. But you see what you've done, you've emasculated Jesus as a savior because why would you need a savior if God's always a God of love and, and wrath and sin and repentance are never realities which are talked about. 
And so the result is that what people settle into is some kind of pseudo, quasi-Christian spiritual searching for a God of love with more airtime given to the Holy Spirit than to Christ. Now, let's give airtime to the Holy Spirit, but not at the expense of Jesus, because if you say, if you don't mention Jesus as saviour, because why would you if you don't understand what you need to be saved from, then the Holy Spirit becomes totally mysterious and then your communion with God becomes a, a set of steps that you have to jump through and it's all about what you have to do to do for God to get close to him rather than the gospel which is about what God has done to get close to us. I mean, where is the news that Christ died to set us free once and for all from condemnation and the wrath to come? And therefore, he set us free from the slavery to our own need to religiously perform to somehow be acceptable to God. Jesus died to redeem us from that curse of the law. And that was the message that Paul, our apostle, as apostle to the Gentiles, preached. And because we are Gentiles, he's our apostle, we've got to not turn from him. So this letter to, to the Galatian church, it still matters for us. And it reminds us that returning to worldly religion means rejecting Paul as our apostle. And then point three, it means being rejected as a son and being sent away. And now we come to this gut-wrenching story of Hagar and Ishmael in Genesis 21. And if you haven't read it, or you can't remember it, it is, you should, you should read it, but it's, it's a really hard read. Out of the blue, God delivers his blueprint plan to Abraham to reverse the effects of sin and curse in the world. And he basically picks out a sun worshiper in Iraq, right? Because he was Zoroastrian, they used to worship the sun. And he just picks him up out of the blue and says, guess what, Abraham, I want you to move your family, your, your wife, nephew Lot, go to the land, I promise you, and I will bring, bring blessing to the nations of the world through you. And so he goes, um, at that stage Abraham is 75, but he doesn't have any kids, he, Sarah's childless. After a long journey, after a time in Egypt because of famine, Abraham starts calling on God, he builds an altar, he becomes wealthy, he becomes victorious, God's blessing him. And then God speaks to him again, he reiterates the promise, but Abraham says, I still haven't got a child. And God says, go outside, Abraham, and look at the night sky, and look at how many stars there, and he says, that's how many children you're gonna have. Fast forward 11 years after this, there are still no children on the horizon. Abraham is not a spring chicken anymore. I mean, he wasn't at 75, right? So in desperation, Abraham and Sarah, they come up with this plan and Sarah basically gives Abraham her maidservant, Hagar, to have a child by. That happens and Abraham now has a son, Ishmael. Though now, understandably, there is tension between Hagar, Ishmael's mum, and Sarah, Abraham's wife. 13 years after that, Abraham's now 99, Sarah still has no son, and God turns up and says, guess what, this time next year, Sarah's going to have a son. Now, it is so laughable by this stage that Sarah actually laughs out loud. I mean, and it is 
ludicrous to think. Imagine a woman in her 90s going to birthing classes. Can you imagine that? But yet it happens. The miracle son Isaac is born to Sarah just as God promises. When Isaac is old enough to be weaned, Abraham puts on a great feast. But Isaac's mum, Sarah, catches Ishmael, who's probably about 16 or 17 by this stage, mocking her son, Isaac. And this prompts Sarah to tell Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and get rid of her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. Now, of course, this is distressing to Abraham. Ishmael is his son, but God tells him to do it. And so in one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the Bible, which by the way, the um, Muslims, when they go on their Hajj, their pilgrimage to Mecca, they act out this scene. Um, Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away. And it's heartbreaking. Now if you want to see how God then looks after Hagar and Ishmael and grows him into a great nation, which we know as the Arabs, you can read about that in Genesis 21. It's to this story that Paul goes. Now why? Well he says, if you want to be under the law, okay, let's look at a story within the law. A story which tells of the two different ways that God brings forth children from Abraham. He says there are two sons. There's Ishmael and there's Isaac. There are two mothers, Hagar and Sarah. Each represent two types of children of Abraham and two types of religion. Ishmael and Hagar stand for normal religion because Ishmael was born the normal way, nothing special. He was born out of people trying to wrangle God's blessing through their own efforts. That's Ishmael. But when he was born, he had the status of a slave. Okay, plant that in your brain for a moment. Isaac, however, was the child of promise. And he was born of God. He was born miraculously, just as God promised. Only through the obvious supernatural intervention of God. And he represents someone who is supernaturally born of God by the spirit of God and by the promise of God. The promise that comes to us in the gospel. Go with the analogy. Paul says, Hagar and Sarah represent two different covenants. Now here is the real surprise. Hagar, who gave birth to Ishmael, and Arabs and Muslims. Paul says she stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia. She stands for everything Jewish. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, when Paul wrote this, Islam didn't exist, right? That was 600 AD. But it's interesting. <laughs> he says, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and the present city of Jerusalem and, and all human religion which tries to get blessing from God through our own efforts. But Sarah, who gave birth miraculously by God because of his promise and by the power of the Spirit, she stands for that which comes only from God. She stands for the new covenant, which is not, has nothing to do with trying to achieve blessing through our own efforts 
but all about Jesus and the promise of God that all who look to Jesus in faith receive eternal life and the gift of his spirit. And so there's two different ways of thinking. And he says, guess what? We who believe in Jesus, we're children of that promise. We are not children of Hagar who try and get God's blessing through our own effort. But now we have to learn from the story. He says, just as the son born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted the son born by the spirit, it is exactly the same now. Verse 29. He said, there will always be people who because they go to church and because they say the prayers and they go through the motions, because they're religious, they will say that they're Christians, but they are not because they have no real relationship with God and they are the ones who will persecute people who really are Christians by the gospel, people who have a relationship with God because they have been born again by his spirit. Now I know some of you know this in your families, don't you? You grew up in a very religious family. Maybe you grew up in a legalistic back church background. And you've discovered God through the miracle of rebirth by his spirit in the gospel. And you get persecuted. Uh, I remember I'm an ordained Anglican minister, kind of religious, you know, a religious professional dude. And I remember when I first came to Adelaide, I went to my first clergy gathering. It was 2003. Um, and evangelicals were in a minority in the Diocese of Adelaide. And, um, you know, they had everyone stand up who was new, who'd come to the diocese, and my name wasn't called out. And I thought, oh, right, okay, I feel welcome. Thanks for the love, guys. Anyway, um, but after morning tea, they, the guy running it said, oh, we, we have forgotten, there was someone else. Uh, Chris, stand up. So I stood up, and someone said, which church is he from? Is he at? And someone said, oh, that church. <laughs> I felt like I was in the school ground again. Here are my peers. I'd never experienced that where I came from. I thought, well, Paul said it here, didn't he? There will be people in institutional religion and in legalistic church backgrounds for whatever who will persecute those who are born of the Spirit by the gospel. Paul says that's the way it was, that's the way it has been, it's the way it always will be. And then finally we come to the main lesson, verse 30. Finally Paul tells us what's at stake for all of us in what he said. In the story of Isaac and Ishmael, in that tragic scene of the slave woman and her son Ishmael being sent away from Abraham, we see the tra tragic truth that if we let go of the promise of God in the gospel, if we let go of Christ alone, if we let go of being reborn by the power of the Spirit and the power of God held out in the gospel, if we put ourselves under the slavery of thinking that our standing with God is all about how religious we are, we too will be sent away. In the end, that is the difference between those people to whom Jesus will say on the last day, depart from me, I never knew you, and those who are welcomed. Welcomed because they are known by God and they themselves know God through Jesus Christ. I never knew you, I know you. 
It all comes down to a relationship which we enter into through the gospel. What a wonderful thing that in the last verse, God, speaking to us through his spirit who inspired Paul, addresses that most terrible of fears. Yes, the slave woman and her son and the would-be disciples were sent away. He says, but brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. You believe in Jesus, we are not those who will be sent away. So we can't throw Christ away, we mustn't throw Christ away, we mustn't slip into reducing our relationship with God to a few religious practices, that would be a disaster. And now maybe you're sitting there thinking, hang on, actually, if I'm honest, that's what my relationship with God has been like, but you're talking about something different. Okay. Well, I am talking about something different. And what you need to do is to turn from your reliance upon yourself and you need to turn to Christ as if he is everything because he is, that's the point, he is everything. He's everything we need. And when you enthrone him as Lord, he through his spirit enters in and you will stand in that personal relationship with the living God, that personal relationship which declares you righteous in his sight, that personal relationship which confers on you the status of his son or daughter. More than that, confers on you the status as heir. And you can call him father. And he is yours. And you are his. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. And on that last day, that means there is no fear. No fear. Because he knows you and you know him. Father in heaven, may this be true for every one of the people in this building. We pray, God, with great thankfulness in our hearts for the difference Jesus makes, that in sending your son, we too can become sons, children of God. And thank you for the gift of your spirit. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would live standing firm in the grace of Christ. Amen.